You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. The U.S. Supreme Court could decide a case this term that would have major implications for gun rights and gun control measures going forward. Yesterday, the court heard arguments in a case challenging New York State's law that limits the right to carry concealed handguns. The central question in the case is how far state and local governments can go when regulating an individual's ability to carry a gun outside the home. Here to talk about the case and its broader implications is someone who has studied these issues quite a bit. Eric Rubin is an assistant professor at Southern Methodist University School of Law and a fellow with the Brennan Center for Justice who focuses on criminal law, legal ethics, and the Second Amendment. Eric Rubin, welcome to Detroit Today. Stephen, thanks so much for having me on the show. So uh, let's start with some background on this case and why it has made its way to the nation's highest court. Sure. So this this case involves a, a law in New York State that requires anyone to um, who, who wants to carry a concealed handgun in public to receive a permit. In order to get that permit in New York, you need to show proper cause which means some heightened need for self-protection that separates you from the general public. In other words, saying that you simply want to carry a handgun concealed because you might get attacked by a stranger is an insufficient reason in New York. Um, And therefore, you need to show something more, like that you've been stalked or that you carry a lot of money for your job or something like that. And the challengers in this particular case – which is an NRA affiliate as well as two individuals, um, think that that requirement of showing a heightened need for self-protection violates the Second Amendment's right, which they view in a more unfettered way, in a way that allows you to, in essence, carry a handgun virtually anywhere, so long as you're not otherwise disqualified from owning a gun. And to to put this in kind of more, uh, I, I guess, more lay terms. Really, the question here is whether your gun rights, your individual gun rights, which the Supreme Court has already decided that we have, and that was a pretty uh, significant change in in gun law interpretation when, when that happened. But uh, the, the question here is, does that right, that unfettered right to own and have a gun extend beyond your own home. In other words, uh, much of the understanding of the Second Amendment and what it protects has been about people's homes and, and their, their protection of their homes and their protection of themselves in those homes. This really asks the question, how far outside the home that un, unbothered right uh, should extend? Am I, am I right in, 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 in interpreting it that way? Yeah, yeah. So, so you're, you're completely right that at the Supreme Court, at least, um, the focus in the past couple decades has been on the right to have a handgun in the home. Um, the big case there is a case called District of Columbia v. Heller from 2008. And that was the first time in the United States history that the Supreme Court struck down any gun law on the basis of the Second Amendment. Mm-hmm. And that case involved a ban on handgun possession in the home in the District of Columbia. And the court decided that 
the Second Amendment right, which mentions prominently a well-regulated militia in the first half of the right, is not primarily about the militia, but rather is about private self-defense. And it struck down the District of Columbia ban on handguns in the home, saying that at its core, self-defense is much most acute in the home and somebody has a right to possess a, a handgun in the home, so long as they don't, they're not disqualified by a past conviction or something like that. Um, so, so that case only dealt with gun possession in the home. And even though it was a major case, a major Second Amendment case that had massive impl implications and brought a lot of litigation that I'm happy to talk about, um, there were only two places in the country that had a ban on handguns at the time. So the immediate implications of the law were not that profound. This case is go could have more um, uh, far-reaching implications right off the bat because about 80 million people live in places that restrict public carry of handguns in the same way that New York does. And moreover, carrying guns in public has externalities, can affect other people more than simply possessing it in the home. So this is a major Second Amendment case. Hmm. Uh, also talk a little about the, the, the court itself and the ways in which uh, precedent looks different in the context of gun rights and Second Amendment than it does in, in terms of other things that the court deals with and what i'm getting at there is that there you mentioned there is so little actual supreme court precedent to hold uh, justices uh, to, to to any kind of standard with regard to the to the second amendment it just hasn't been uh, ruled on in in explicit terms uh, a, a lot of times and so when a case like this uh, which has a substantive question about gun rights at its core gets to the court, really, in some ways, it's a question of first impression. And that allows, I think, for a, a broader set of possibilities in terms of the interpretation among the justices who happen to be sitting on the court right now. Is that is that right as well? It is, and it's, highly, and it's a highly significant point. I mean, Heller, the 2008 case, is younger than the first iPhone. Mm -hmm. The right. Second Amendment is getting developed in our lifetimes right now. And that sets it apart from things like the freedom of speech, which started getting unpacked by the Supreme Court early in the 1900s. And, and this is significant in terms of constitutional development and what the justices can do in a case like this for the same reasons that you were saying, which is that if you're dealing with a free speech issue, um, you, the, the court, which is bound or which, which, is, um, which, which tends to follow its past precedents, has to navigate through dozens and dozens of cases and is bound by the precedent in a way that it's simply not when it comes to the Second Amendment. Mm -hmm. Because there's so little Second Amendment law, the court is writing on a blank slate. And that means that it has a, a, a massive um, ability, a great ability to set the, the trajectory right now for what the Second Amendment will mean for decades and decades to come. Yeah, it's an incredibly powerful 
position that these nine justices are sitting in with regard to, to, to gun rights. Uh, I'm talking with Eric Rubin, assistant professor at Southern Methodist University School of Law and a fellow with the Brennan Center for Justice who focuses on criminal law, legal ethics, and the Second Amendment. Uh, we're talking about the Supreme Court oral arguments on Wednesday of this week uh, that took a look at a New York law that uh, has a heightened requirement for people to be able to uh, obtain a license to carry handguns outside uh, of their homes. It's a pretty significant Second Amendment case. Uh, it could uh, really change the face of the law, not just in New York State, but in every state in the union. Uh, we would love to hear from you during this conversation as well. Uh, what hopes or fears do you have about the future of gun laws uh, as they are in the hands of this particular Supreme Court? Uh, are you somebody who is hopeful that they will bring about an era of fewer gun restrictions? Uh, are you somebody who is worried that they might bring about an era of uh, fewer gun restrictions? Give us a call and let us know uh, what your thinking is about the current state of uh, gun laws in, in our country, a country uh, in which there are more guns than there are people right now. I think all the time that is a really fascinating statistic that tells us an awful lot about the American character. Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, uh, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. As always, we also want to hear from, from gun owners. Uh, why do you own a gun? Uh, what do you think about the rights that allow you to own that gun? Are they sufficient to protect your gun ownership or your gun purchases? Uh, give us a sense of how you think you fit into this scheme of uh, Second Amendment rights and the regulation that many people think needs to be a little tighter uh, to make sure that guns don't fall into the hands of people who will do criminal things with them. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Zoe in Ferndale. Zoe, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning, Stephen. Hi. Uh, I wanted to say I am typically for stricter gun control laws, but also there are a lot of laws on the books that are not always enforced, often due to lack of resources. One of the things that really interests me is that in some states, you know, someone might commit a crime, be convicted, then they wouldn't be able to purchase a gun there, but that state doesn't talk to another state, so they might cross line. And then someone who shouldn't have a gun gets one legally. And oftentimes it's people who do have past convictions or past history of violence who then go on to commit even greater violence. So I think we should, before we do anything else, focus on making sure that we're enforcing the laws that are already in effect today. Hmm. Uh, great Great point, Zoe. I'm glad you called and, and made that. Uh, Eric Rubin, respond to what Zoe's talking about here. The, uh, the, the enforcement of current laws is one of the things that's in jeopardy here in this, in this case. This is, uh, this is a law that, that, um, that could be struck down, and that would affect laws in, in lots of other states. Yeah, so I mean, Zoe makes a great point that 
it's it's important not only to just as a policy matter, not only to write good gun laws, but also to then enforce them after the fact. Um, and a lot of times, too much attention goes into the the process of passing the law, and not enough follow up into actually how they get enforced. And I think that one great example of this um, is the mass shooting that happened in Sutherland Springs, Texas, where I am where there was an individual who should have been disqualified from owning a firearm because of a conviction while he was in the Air Force. And the Air Force never uploaded that record into the the federal database. And so he was able to go and buy a firearm and then shoot over 20 people at a church. Um, So it's absolutely important to plug holes in the enforcement. Um, And it's also true, like Zoe said, that some laws are over-inclusive and that they're um, targeting people who probably don't present much of a threat and under-inclusive and that they're missing others who could be dangerous with a firearm. Um, the main issue with this with this Supreme Court is that a lot of laws that are on the books, there's, there, there could not even, there might not even be an opportunity to focus on enforcement because if they run afoul of the Second Amendment and they're deemed unconstitutional, then they're simply struck down. Um, so this, this case does have implications, not only for the passing of laws, but our, our opportunity to enforce them and try to save lives. Mm. Uh, again, Zoe, really appreciate the call uh, and the, the thoughtful insights there. Before we go back to listeners, uh, Eric, I do want to talk about the oral arguments yesterday uh, and what you made uh, of those oral arguments. It's always a little dangerous to predict the outcome of cases based on oral arguments because a lot of things going on there that uh, are not literal, I think. Uh, And and a lot of times the justices are actually talking to each other as opposed to talking to the lawyers. Uh, But but give us a sense of how oral arguments went and what you took away from them. Yeah, so as you say, it's always hard to predict how these cases are going to come out until an opinion is filed. And this opinion will probably get filed um, in, in, in the summer, in June sometime. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it, you know, it seemed to me, listening to the two hours of oral arguments, that a majority of the justices are skeptical about the New York law, and in particular the discretion that it affords to the licensing authorities who are deciding whether or not somebody can get a permit. Um, that should be a reason for gun rights advocates to be optimistic about the outcome. Um, but there were a lot of difficult questions that came up during oral argument, and, um, and, and there's likely to be a lot of nuance in whatever decision they, they issue. Mm. So it seemed, for example, that none of the justices voiced any support for a Texas-style permitless carry scheme where you don't even need a license to carry a gun in public. Um, and, and that just raises the question, well, okay, well, if New York's policy – goes too far and but you can still require a license what are the requirements that you can impose on the license can you impose a training requirement um a background check which is the 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 state of things in detroit and in michigan um and and beyond that what sorts of restrictions can you put on where to carry the gun there are a lot of questions um justice barrett brought up a couple times Carrying a gun, can you carry a gun into New Year's in, into Times Square on New Year's Eve? Um, the the question of can you if you strike down New York New York's law, can you restrict the carrying of guns into bars and into subways? And the attorney for the NRA affiliate, Paul Clement, 
refused to give any ground. He wouldn't. He didn't say that it would be permissible. He didn't agree that it would be permissible to restrict guns on New York City subways. Hmm. And I think that if, if New York's law gets struck down, it's just going to raise a host of new questions about how else you can restrict the public carrying of, um, of handguns. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, Paul Clement, uh, a name that is, of course, very familiar in Supreme Court circles, uh, was the Solicitor General of the United States, uh, I think, during the second Bush uh, administration and is a very skilled advocate uh, at the Supreme Court. He he wins an awful lot of, of the time. Um, okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we're going to continue this conversation uh, about the gun case at the U.S. Supreme Court. We'll also continue to hear from you about your feelings about gun laws and gun restrictions, whether they are too strict Uh, or too permissive. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad that you've joined us. My guest is Eric Rubin. He's assistant professor at Southern Methodist University School of Law and a fellow with the Brennan Center for Justice. His focus is on criminal law, legal ethics, and the Second Amendment. We're talking about the oral arguments on Wednesday of this week at the Supreme Court over a case. Uh, out of the state of New York that poses the question about whether state regulations uh, that require uh, some some heightened uh, criteria uh, in order to carry a handgun outside uh, your home are in conflict with the Second Amendment. We're talking about the Second Amendment uh, and gun rights generally what you think about the state of gun rights. Are you somebody who thinks uh, we have... Uh, too many gun laws in this country, or are you somebody who thinks we have too few? What do you expect this Supreme Court uh, to? Uh, what do you expect the Supreme Court to do with this case? As always, the number here on the phones is three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. That's three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. You can also go to the WDT Facebook page, put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag. Uh, Detroit Today, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, let's go to Melissa in Metro Detroit. Melissa, what's on your mind today? Uh, hi, Stephen. Um, hello to the professor. Um, so I was wondering if we could use as the main criteria, um, if a person lives or works in a high-crime area, um, which, of course, is absurd because we shouldn't have high-crime areas in one of the richest countries in the world, um, but if that could be the criteria, uh, with some exceptions, like the professor mentioned, somebody that's been being stalked or carries large amounts of money for their work. Um, but if that's that's just it, that's oh, you're carrying a gun because of this reason. Hmm. Uh, great question, Melissa. What, what was the discussion, uh, Eric, about the possibility that uh, that the New York law perhaps goes too far? 
in terms of establishing criteria and is unconstitutional for that reason, rather than the kind of blanket idea that any criteria for carrying a handgun outside the home might be uh, in opposition to, to, to their, your constitutional rights. So this is a, a, an area of the oral arguments yesterday that I found quite fascinating. And it seems that there is disagreement or there might be disagreement amongst the conservative justices who want to um, who, who are, seem poised to dial back New York's gun law. Um, the, the question really is whether or not gun regulation can constitutionally vary depending on what part of a state or what part of the country you are in. Historically, and history matters a great deal to these justices, historically, cities regulated firearms more strictly than rural areas. Hmm. Most of the gun regulation was in places um, that had higher population density because that is where crime is a, a, a bigger deal. But as Melissa mentions, where crime is a bigger deal, arguably you should have more of a means to defend yourself. And this, got, this was played out in the oral arguments yesterday. And, um, and, and one thing that surprised um, me and I think other commentators was that Justice Thomas, seemed, who, who generally is in favor of robust gun rights, seemed to be open, or at least to be considering, the possibility that this case doesn't need to decide whether or not gun rights are as expansive in cities, because the two plaintiffs in this case are from Rensselaer, New York, which is a much more rural area than New York City itself. And he was asking questions along the lines of, do, do your clients, he was asking questions to Paul Clement, um, do your clients need their guns to go into New York City? Is New York City even at issue here? And, um, and, and the answer was no, it's not. Now, on the other side, Justice Alito was asking questions about the um, the person who has to walk through dangerous neighborhoods in New York City and how they might have a greater need to protect themselves. Hmm. So it's, 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 an, it's an issue that will be really interesting to see how they come out, um, because I could see it going both ways. I could see this case consistent with the historical tradition of regulating more strictly in cities um, to allow cities like New York City and Detroit more leeway when it comes to deciding for themselves what laws will keep them safer. Hmm. Um, or I could see it go the other way and emphasize the security needs in high crime areas. Yeah. yeah. Melissa, great question. Really glad you called uh, and asked that. Let's go to Mark in Redford Township. Mark, welcome to the show. Stephen, good morning. Hi. Uh, my discussion goes beyond the uh, the right to bear arms, I think, the perspectives around that. First of all, I want to say that the right to bear arms is predicated on a, as the founders noted, is predicated on a, um, um, a standing army. But the problem I have with gun ownership today, I think, is, is that um, the caliber of the weaponry that's being allowed to be circulated hmm. and... You know, the police are threatened by this. They would say so themselves. And I think there needs to be more regulation in that regard. Uh, that's an interesting point, Mark. And and it's not at issue in this case, but the question of handguns versus other guns is one of the things that kind of lies at the heart of what 
the justices are considering. This is about handguns. It is not yes. about uh, it is not about other things. Eric, I wonder what your response is. Yeah, you know, I I think uh, first, Stephen, your listeners are great. They're asking fantastic questions. <laughs> I think Mark's question gets at something really important here, which is that weaponry has evolved a great deal since the founding era. Um, in 1791, when the Second Amendment was enacted, handguns comprised much less than 10 percent of the overall weaponry. Hmm. Muskets were muzzle loaders, which meant that you can't carry them around loaded because they could misfire. And it took a, a fair amount of time to, to load them. And after you shot once, um, you, you basically were, were, had to redo the process. And in a typical self-defense situation, that just meant that firearms were less useful for self-defense and less useful for crime. Um, today, weapons are, firearms are much more lethal. And one of the things that's interesting in this case is that uh, the courts seem to be inclined, you know, at least four of the justices, maybe a majority of the justices, seem to want to say that the constitutional, constitutionality of today's gun restrictions um, will turn on whether or not they're analogous restrictions in the earlier part of the hmm. American history. And one of the challenges that you get in that situation is that the weapons were different back then. Um, Mark mentioned caliber size. Caliber is a massively important indicator of how lethal and dangerous a, a gunshot wound will be. Ask any ER doctor. Um, and uh, so the weapons were different. The security needs were different. So how do you analogize restrictions on you know, carrying, uh, storing black powder in your house to modern safe storage requirements? How do you analogize historical weapons to modern weapons like tasers, which are arms, um, or, or pepper spray or things like that? And how do you draw comparisons between AR-15s and these old weapons? So, you know, it, it, to the extent the court seems po um, interested in, in basing its constitutional law on history, it turns into a difficult question of historical analogies, and I think that's one of the things that Mark's getting at. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a listener on Twitter, uh, Jack, has a really interesting question as well. He says, how can the Supreme Court justify ruling one way on states' rights to regulate abortion and perhaps another way on states' rights to regulate guns? Of course, the uh, abortion issue was also at the, the Supreme Court this week and is swirling around this this Texas law that is uh, incredibly restrictive, of course. Uh, I think for a lot of people, it's confusing when the court does one thing in one area of American life and does another in a separate area. Eric, I wonder if you can help Jack understand how that happens and, and whether it makes sense. Well, it's Jack's question's a, a, a good one, and it depends on how cynical you want to get here. Um, <laughs> so the abortion right recognized in Roe in, in 1973 um, and refined through the years is on the court's docket this year, and a lot of people think it's going to get dialed back, if not straight out overturned. Um, in, in, and the upshot of that would be that states have the ability to regulate abortion more strictly. And on the flip side, you've got the Second Amendment right, um, which the courts in, in the justice yesterday were saying is getting underprotected and needs more protection. We have to limit the state's ability to regulate it. 
it's hard to ignore the ideological shift that has happened on the court um, over the past four years when you're considering these questions. The justices are talking about the right to an abortion as if it's getting overprotected and needs to get dialed back while they're talking about gun rights as if they're under assault, despite the fact that um, Americans have the highest rate of civilian possession of firearms in the world. Um, so ideology could play a role here. Mm-hmm. I think that the flip side of it, what they would say is that the Roe case was wrongly decided from the beginning. Mm-hmm. There is no express right to an abortion in the Constitution, and there is an express right to keep and bear arms. But that's overly simplistic. I think it's hard to ignore um, the, the ideological uh, positioning of the different justices and the different methodologies that they want to bring to bear, mm. especially how, how wedded they are to looking to history to decide today's questions. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Eric Rubin, uh, assistant professor at Southern, Mes- Southern Methodist University School of Law and a fellow with the Brennan Center for Justice. It was really great to have you here for this conversation today. Thanks so much for stopping by to explain this to our listeners. Thank you so much for having me on. Anytime. Okay, that is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to look at how single-family zoning laws have driven inequality and segregation in America for a really long time. Really interesting conversation online for tomorrow's show. Detroit Today is produced by Jake Neer. Our program director is Joan Isabella. The technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. And our associate producers are Nora Ryan and Sam Corey. Detroit Today's music is created by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. And Sam Bobian was running the board for today's show as well. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.